MSW Media. Prevail. C'est une Geneva programme pro politique. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crime organisé, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Tabrotpo za demokratiju. Et ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, comme ustedes, su anfitrión, I'm Greg Oliar, and this is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Jack Bryan is here. Jack is the documentary filmmaker who made the film Active Measures, the Trump-Russia doc, back in 2018. Fantastic film. He has since turned his attention to podcasting. He's put out a couple of excellent podcasts. We talk a lot about his most recent one, the final episode of which drops this very Sunday. It's called Lawyers, Guns, and Money, and it's about... Iran-Contra and all the stuff that surrounds Iran-Contra. And it is fascinating, really well done. I don't know how he manages to find people to interview like he does. Like not only interesting people, but people who talk well, who tell good stories, and who have great stories to tell. Uh, This is uh, absolutely binge-worthy. I know a lot of people are complaining there's nothing to watch on TV. Binge this. This is great. And it's true. It all happened. It's crazy. So if you're interested in Iran-Contra at all, uh, as I describe in the interview, kind of a Byzantine thing to me in my mind, kind of confusing, I think intentionally, you know, like Jack says in the interview, Iran-Contra is known more for the cover-up than for the actual stuff that was happening. So this is more about the stuff that was actually happening. And it's, it's fascinating. It's stuff I didn't know. And it really does apply to what's going on in our country right now with Trump. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving, a wonderful holiday. I watched a lot of football. It was great. I, I, I watched three football games on Thursday, and I watched the football game on Friday, and I watched a bunch of games on Sunday. I did not stay up late enough on Monday to watch the football game, which was fine. But there's a lot of football I watched, and... Um, you know, I don't watch football like I'm watching or, you know, reading some history book or something. I'm I'm half paying attention. I'm half asleep. It's, it's how I relax. So it was really nice for me. Um, see some family, eat some delicious food. You know, I like Thanksgiving a lot because it's not religious and there's no gift giving involved. And it's kind of a, a principle that we can all get behind. We all pause and we say, hey, what are things that I'm thankful for in my life? Because there's always things that we're thankful for in life. And also, I like turkey. I like stuffing. I like mashed potatoes. I like the meal. You know, it's not something I want to have all the time, but like once a year, that kind of feast, it's perfect. It's just, it's just a perfect holiday. I enjoy it. I woke up this morning. As I'm recording this, it's Thursday morning, November 30th. It's quarter to 6 a.m., so it's still very dark out. Henry Kissinger is dead. Oh, my God. I really kind of thought this guy was going to live forever, but no. There was apparently an opening in hell for another advisor, and Satan had him delivered down first class on the train there. And uh, I don't know. You know, this is one of the worst Americans. I mean, really, just a guy who had so much influence and has so much blood on his hands. And 
apart from all the other stuff that we know about in the, in the time when he was actually National Security Advisor, Secretary of State, he's also the guy that introduced Jared Kushner to Dmitry Symes, thus setting the stage for the whole Trump-Russia thing. So he has his hands in every goddamn thing, and now he's dead. So, um, you know, we don't like to speak ill of the dead, and we're not going to do it here now on this show because I'm in a good mood. But, um, you know, I'm not sad that Kissinger is no longer with us. Let's leave it at that. Spotify Wrapped came out. If you listen to Spotify, you know what this is. My son, very excited about this. This is when it tells you um, at Spotify, which is the music streaming uh, service that a lot of people use, especially a lot of young people, it tells you what songs or podcasts or whatever you consumed the most in the year. And, um, you know, it embarrasses a lot of people because they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I listen to this much Barry Manilow. What am I doing? Anyway, so if you see references to Spotify Wrapped and you're like, what the fuck is this? That's what it means. It's a fun thing. It, it's a diversion. And uh, it's a way that marketing companies, you know, not only quantify what you listen to, but then share it with you as if it's some kind of great thing. So it's functionally the equivalent of like printing out all your bank statements at the end of the year, but, you know, for music. So it's fun. Uh, last but not least, this very night, as you're listening to this, it is December 1st, the 5-8, also back from hiatus, LB and I bringing you a live show for the first time in three weeks. Looking forward to that. Usually make a little list of topics. I have a lot of topics here. I don't know what we're going to narrow it down to. I don't know what's going to happen between now, which for me is still the morning of uh, Thursday, November 30th, and 8 o'clock p.m. Friday night, December 1st. Because often something big happens on Thursday and Friday, and it screws up all of our plans for topics. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see if we'll even get a chance to make fun of the flak jacket that they gave Elon Musk to wear during his visit to Israel. Why is he in Israel? Oh, my God, this guy. All right, that's enough prattle from me. Uh, I love the interview with Jack Bryan. Um, he's somebody that I've known sort of vaguely on Twitter, but I never met him before. So it was really fun for us to, uh, to hang, you know, and talk about all this stuff. I asked him a lot of really hard questions like, hey, can you explain the Vietnam War, please? And uh, he very, very gamely gave answers and uh, really smart ones. And it's good. It's a good convo. I think you guys will enjoy it. I learned a lot, as I always do when I have great guests on. So stick around. We'll be right back with the creator of the new podcast, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, Jack Bryan. Donald Trump is a front who is facing 90 counts, but Biden's old. He lied to the banks by astonishing amounts, but Biden's old. Donald Trump had his minions stage a coup. Said that COVID-19 was no worse than the flu. He's closer to Putin than Sergei Shoigu. But Biden's old. Trump is a racist, a rapist, a misogynist, and a slob. He's a CI for the FBI, because he's owned by the mob. He's currently estranged from his third wife. He sits on his ass during moments of strife. He'll stop all elections and he'll rule for life. But Biden's old. 
Jack Bryan, welcome to Prevail. Thanks for having me. Great, great to be here. I'm so excited to be on this show, and it's great to finally uh, get a chance to speak with you. I feel like we've been in the same sort of universe for a long time. I know it's been it, it has been that way. You you of course you know active measures came out when it feels like it was 25 years ago at this point. Like, uh, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that's when everything started to go off the rails after that. I feel like, you know, I feel like that was <laughs> yeah. the year, like right around when Kavanaugh went in, everything started to really go crazy. It was, it was that last moment where we thought that revealing information could change the situation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So now I want to talk about that too, but you have a new podcast called uh, with the Zivanian title, lawyers, guns, and money. Um, it's great. Uh, you know, it's about Iran Contra, and we'll talk about all that later. But it's you've managed to track down these people and interview them, and it's really, really fascinating stuff. I don't want to give too much away, but um, you know that Iran Contra to me is always it's almost a byword for something crazy and Byzantine that's impossible to get at. And you really do a nice job of kind of explaining, uh, you know, what happened and what the the kind of the context is for all the things that happened. And again, I want to cover that later. Um, because you did such a great job with this. Uh, but before we get going, I wanted to ask about you a little bit. Now, you made the movie Active Measures in 2018. And before that, you made a movie about um, a dive bar in New York City, which is Siberia, the one that was in Port Authority, like in the basement? Or it was was it? Right, right below Port Authority. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, the first location was in the basement of a, a subway station. Okay. Right. And then it moved to right below the Port Authority. So yeah, it was uh, a very wild uh, space. Yeah. I'm amazed that you know about it. I remember the bar. I never, uh, I don't think I ever went to it. I And I, I I am a connoisseur or was at that time of New York City dive bars. Um, wow. Holiday Cocktail Lounge being the, the best one, you know. Were, were you a Mars bar guy? No, no. Okay. No. Yeah. Right. I moved around. It was, it was strange. Fair, 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 fair. It was a strange time. But I bring this up yes. because you're 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 making uh, movies about something very different. And now this comes in. So at what point did you decide to kind of lean into this as your beat, this being Trump and Russia and intelligence and information and all that kind of stuff? Um, so, yes. Yeah, so the, the way that I got into this was I was really I started coming from the from a scripted standpoint. I was doing indie film uh, and that's what I saw my path as being. Until 2016, when uh, Donald Trump got the nomination, and basically, I had known Donald Trump like he was a family friend growing up. Uh, like I was the first person who's ever played his golf course in Scotland. Like literally, the first person ever teed off. I was in a group of four. We were the first to play, and I teed off first. Wow. Uh, okay. So we hung out with him afterwards, and so it was kind of an open secret that he was wildly indebted to the Russian mafia. And people make jokes about it. And you'd be able to get a laugh without explaining it kind of thing. Yeah. And so at the time, though, what I didn't know was the overlap between the Russian mafia and the Russian government. So that became sort of that was a that was that was my fertile, basically, during that period of time. But I had a friend who became my producer on that project who worked at uh, Brookings and who was like who's somewhat who had vague connections to the Clinton campaign and was like, I think this Russia stuff is a thing like early 2016, like before he got the nomination at that point. And at that point, I was fairly dismissive. Uh, I was like, this sounds a little conspiracy stuff. You're probably confusing it with the fact that he, yes, he works for the mob, but what does that have to do with the government? And then I, my thought was, well, this person feels very sure of it. It's a person I trust. So let me think, what would be the things that I would expect to see 
if that were the case. One thing you'd have to see is you'd have to show some public sign of support. Trump would have to do something publicly to say he wants to do this. Then you would start seeing people around his campaign being associated with you know, Russia stuff and Russia campaigns. And then he hired Paul Manafort. And then he said, Russia, are you listening? And but by, by that point, it was like, well, I've now checked off the five things that I would expect to see. Uh, and so, and then everything that went after that, I became very, very obsessed with that over the summer and really looking at that. And also looking at trolls on Facebook that were pumping out just tons of Russian disinformation. And I started tracking them and their activity seemed coordinated. Like the day I too, that I was mainly tracking during that period, just out of pure curiosity. And on the day that the, I think it was October 18th or October 8th, I should know this. It was the day that three things happened. One was the Trump Hollywood uh, tape came out. Mm -hmm. Another was the United States said that the- The um, IC said that the Russia was behind it. Yeah. Uh, was behind it. And then there was a, a third thing, which I think was the um, Podesta emails came out that same day. Mm -hmm. And on that day, the two accounts that I was really tracking, like on a daily basis, went dead. Wow. The profiles okay. went completely dead. And then three days later, same time, they both went live again, but all of the fake news was scrubbed. Wow. Uh, okay. And I was like, well, that's coordinated activity. Like there's, these people do not know each other. I know them both in real life too. I've met, I've met both of these people. And they're doing something. I don't think that that means that these are necessarily like Russian spies, though one like was Russian. And but but someone's paying them to do something. There's there, yeah. there's a campaign element involved in this. Uh, and so that sort of became a sort of factor of like, OK, well, there's there's an active element to this. Let me just continue watching and see what's going on here. And then cut to like March 2017. Uh, it's like two in the morning. I'm watching Clint Watts on C-SPAN testify um, about the active measures campaign and describes it. And I just I've been really reading a lot about it at the time and really had um, kept up with it. And I just sort of in that moment thought, you know, somebody should make a movie about this because there's no institutional filmmaker that would have the time to do a documentary about this before the next election cycle. You'd have to learn, the learning curve is so much that you, if you started now, you wouldn't be able to get there in time. Yeah. So nobody is gonna make that movie. But if somebody had the ability to get the camera crew together, had some political contact, knew how to edit, you know, knew how to make a film, then really this, is a, this would be a thing that somebody really should do. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I, I have all of those things. Yeah, you've you've checked off the box. The only thing you haven't done is hired Paul Manafort. You, you say, yeah, exactly. Joking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so so I was just like, okay, well, uh, this is now what I'm doing. And I had a movie that was a scripted film that was in development that was uh, looking really good at that point, and it was very hard to cancel that. But I did, and the reason was I was just like, if I make this other movie, I'm going to spend the next two years wishing I was making this documentary. Yeah. Um, and so I, I called my friend uh, Brookings and I said, hey, I think she was working uh, somewhere else at that point. But I said, hey, no, she was at Brookings at that point. Check. Um, I said, hey, do you want to quit your job and make a documentary? And she's like, I don't even know what that means. Like, make a documentary. What is it like out of what? Uh, and I was like, don't worry. I'll explain it. You just you help get interviews and I'll worry about the rest. And we just did it. We never had more than, you know, $15,000 in the bank when we were making that. And we were just, you know, get a little bit of money, show up, do an interview. And I was editing it with my editor and then I ended up editing myself. And then it went really well. It was, a, we got very lucky, a lot of things, timing and stuff, but it was, um, that was, that really drew me in. And it was one of those things of like, 
well, I know this is a thing. Like the minute I made the connection between the government and the Russian mafia, right. that that was basically one of the same. I was like, well, I know this isn't going anywhere. Like I know, like people in March, because we started, we started the documentary before Comey got fired. Oh, wow. um, okay. And, yeah. yeah. And so at that point, it was every question was like, well, what, what if the story just goes away in two months? And it was just like, I, I know, as a matter of fact, this isn't like, I, I know that there's a there there. So don't like, there might be elements of it that aren't fully accurate. I don't know. But like, there's definitely, this isn't just going to go away as a nothing. Um, and so that really pulled me into this world. And I love making that doc. I thought it was um, a great experience. And uh, obviously, you know, anytime I really, I, I'm someone who loves learning. And so when it's like, oh, here's a topic where there is so much written on this that you can read. <laughs> there's like 40 books uh, on this topic and, you know, you can just start consuming them. Um, and, you know, and not just, obviously the movie ends up, is really as much about uh Putin and Russia and Europe as it is about uh, America. Uh, and I think that was the most, for me, the most interesting uh, part, really diving into that. And I kind of just um, kept moving forward in that world. I mean, the, the podcasts, the, the two podcasts that I've done in the last two years, both came out of Active Measures. Yeah. Um, and so um, a lot of it has been, and then the, the QAnon doc we did for Vice was very much like a lot of that came directly out because it was, it was almost a continuation. Um, and so, yeah, once I kind of got pulled into this world, I've sort of just <laughs> made a life out of it to an extent. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand and I sympathize. Um, you know, I used to write novels once upon a time. And I think, I don't know, maybe two years ago, it occurred to me that I was probably going to be writing about this fucker for the rest of my life. And um, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just what what kind of happened. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I remember watching the movie your movie active measures and thinking oh good i'm glad this exists now you know we can just not worry about this guy anymore and then of course he just keeps on it's like the fucking energizer bunny of crime but i was going to ask if you knew him because i know that you sort of moved in, in in similar worlds so what's he like because there's a lot of people that kind of there's a lot of different ways of describing him i have an idea in my head so i'm curious if it if it matches the idea I'm talking about when you knew him, not now. Yeah, yeah. and I, I should also add, like, when I say I hung out with him after the thing, we spent five minutes. Yeah, yeah, talking. Yeah. So, and, and I'm, I'm not. I haven't. I don't think I've ever had a dinner with him, but I've had probably fifteen to twenty three minute conversations, and he wouldn't know me from Adam. Um, but he's the exact. I mean, you no, know, he in person, he's just like. It's it's the shtick, but it's a much more casual version of this. At least when I was talking to him, you know, you you know he's selling and it's shticky, but it's um, there was a I, I would I by the way I was never a, a fan of him and I always thought it was a complete cornball, but there was a he did have a charm to him like he was definitely yeah. trying to when he's trying to charm people, uh, and at that point he was still uh, he he had a, a a sort of charismatic charm, but it wasn't. I think it was laced with so much cornball like shtick that I was always it always eats me when people were like, oh, he was actually kind of charming. I was like, yeah, but it's like a used car salesman is being charming, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no. And he's always been terrible. I mean, that's the other thing is like I, I was very close friends with uh, Ivanka's best friend. OK. For a very, very long time. And she had gone to you know, Christmas vacations with them, like multiple vacations with the, just her and the family. And she's, her joke was, and it was true, but she was 
very she was a good looking woman but wasn't like a model kind of attractive yeah and her joke was that she has known donald forever and he has never once remembered her name because he's not one of ivanka's hot friends <laughs> and so that was like he he was a cornball like kind of creepy old dude in that way like it wasn't just it wasn't he wasn't a fascist leader at that point so he was just like kind of a creepy kind of sleazy old dude that's it i mean i i guess this is a self-evident question but how much does it blow your mind thinking back on having that guy that you you know vaguely know be now you know the president for four years and now this guy that is like threatening the american experiment of democracy it's just kind of crazy i think i think it's it's we've yeah crossed it's, some I sort mean, of the, line of crazy you know it, it was it, it, it yes but i feel like my my the crazy uh detector broke like around <laughs> 2016 17 so now it's all just like yeah it's all real strange but like <laughs> you know i don't know <laughs> yes it's very odd though so and this is what i wanted to, to ask you too because i know you've been in this now for a while like I'm trying to think of how to phrase the question, but how, if you looking back on it now, what has surprised you the most about just everything about the situation that happened with him? And I can answer the question for myself, uh, if, if that's helpful. Um, how, I, I, I think that for me, and I'll, I'll tie this in as well too, uh, the thing that surprised me most while doing, um, Active measures was how little it seemed that the aftermath of that was how little facts seemed to matter. And that was disturbing. And then I made uh, the thing I just made lowest kinds of money. And what I found was, oh, it's it's been that way for a while. Yeah. But that's not a new that's not a new thing. And in a weird way, that gave me comfort. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there was a sense of like, oh, OK, we've actually been this bad for a while now. OK, cool. OK, OK, OK. okay. So the the threats have been with us much longer, which in a sense, and that's that's kind of in a large part the, the end up being the, the point of uh, of lawyers' guns and money is that these threats have been with us in in different forms, not as as present as they are, and that makes them both more serious and that like this is systemic, but it also makes it a little less intimidating for me because it means it's also slower moving, that it's yeah. not it didn't just appear overnight and it's just taking over. This has been a slow boil. And if it's going to go away, it's probably going to go away as a slow boil as well, or slow simmer. I don't know it's, uh, to extend that metaphor. <laughs> I, I, I hope I hope so. Um, yeah, one of the things that that popped out at me, and this is this is something that you know, for me, the thing that's the most surprising is how bad the Republicans are, and how that party is being completely co opted by the by the Russian stuff. And uh, listening to the podcast, lawyers, guns, and money. There's all the, the the real hard right guys are all like John Birch guys and all this stuff. And they fucking hated the Russians, you know, say what you will about the John Birch Society. At least they knew to hate the Russians. And now those same people that are were in that group are totally on board with this guy. It's just so bizarre how how and I get it's not communist, I understand, but it's still bizarre how quickly that flipped. That and that really ends up being a large part of our final episode is examining the progress of how these this exact guys went from focusing their hate and paranoia in one direction and how that developed over time into the exact same hate and paranoia but because the ground changed it just sort of the nature of it changed but it is exactly what we have today in the far-right movement yeah. and, and it very much developed 
and became organized in the 1980s uh, and late 70s, but, but really the 1980s. And the organizations that you see today are basically the, the children of what was happening in the 80s. Um, and this really spurred a lot of that. As we record this, it, it's, a, it's an episode series. So, you know, there's only how many yeah. episodes are there? Episode five dropped today, and there yeah. are seven total, unless yeah. you go to Supercast, and then you get uh, three bonus episodes already, and I think we're going to do another bonus episode for Supercast. Oh, cool. Again. Okay. Okay. How do you do that? You just hit a button uh, somewhere? Oh, yeah. You go to, oh, sorry, good call. You go to Lawyers, Guns, and Money, lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Okay. Uh, okay. And you can sign up for bonus episodes and get it ad-free and get an episode six dropped on Supercast today. Okay. And so that is, um, yes, but it's seven episodes total uh, for the general okay. series. So by the time this is out, by the time people are listening to this, because it's November 19th right now, I think all, all of the episodes will be out, which is good. So, you know, people can binge the whole thing, which is, which is yeah. fantastic. It's a, and it's a it's, good binge. It's, 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 it is. It's, yes. that, that's, that's one difference between this. And I think a lot of podcasts like this is that um, many of the podcasts, even the ones that I love, it, it's sort of each episode is sort of its own independent story. And you're kind of talking about a different thing in each one. This is a very linear story. Like this is yeah. a, a, with a rising action and climax and the whole thing. Uh, it, and it, it's, it is definitely a fun binge. Yeah, it is. I agree. Um, so, all right. I want to ask you, and I want to talk more about the podcast and also kind of the background stuff to the podcast. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jack Bryan. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with uzis and one of them in broken english said welcome to bogota john mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells mattis a dangerous secret he was shipping arms into central america on behalf of the cia as a first-time lawyer i want to act like i know what i'm doing but with the help of a colombian drug smuggler how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. 
There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Jack Bryan. Uh, the new podcast is called Lawyers, Guns, and Money, which I love that song so much. So I'm going to, it's been in my head now for two days, by the way. So uh, one of the best. We are worst thing. I, <laughs> Dad, get me out of this is the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good like Trump line, too, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you mentioned earlier that this project kind of came out of active measures, but what was the impetus behind it? How did you get started with this particular uh, topic and, and and find the people to uh, to interview and stuff like that? Yeah. So when I was uh, doing active measures, we found this uh, gentleman who had basically worked for the, I wanted a Bernie person in the movie. Uh, I wanted somebody from the Sanders camp to be like, yes, this is real and this happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, because that was a, a big thing, especially early on, was the the far left people not really wanting to accept that there was a, a yeah. Russian element to it. Uh, and so we found uh, this guy, John Mattis, who had been a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign and who had seen a bunch of Russian disinformation pop up and try to get the word out very early on. Uh, and so we interviewed him. And, you know, after you do a long interview like that sometimes you have lunch with a person you talk you follow up and maybe you hang out you get along whatever and so we're, i'm just sitting there and it was it, that one was a very long interview so i was a little worn out i was kind of eating a sandwich and mattis says you know this wasn't this wasn't the first time i got involved with a political scandal you know 
And uh, I was like, okay, 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 okay. And he started talking, telling a story. And about three minutes into the story, I was like, wait a second, what did you just say? <laughs> Let's can we go back and start from the beginning? And I, I, I now see where the story is going, and I'm very interested. And I just sat there for another hour, and it got more fascinating, more interesting. And it turned out that one of the main characters in that story was somebody I had already interviewed for Active Measures. <laughs> and that the guy that I'd interviewed in Active Measures made reference to that story and to Mattis in the interview. And I had no idea that these people knew each other. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I was like, that's that's a crazy little coincidence. But I, I just couldn't get his story out of my head because it's this insane story that is somehow not I mean, the, the people know that there was a scandal called Iran-Contra. Right. Um, people know that something happened with the giving the Iranians missiles to fund something else. Da, 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 da. But what that really was, and I think that the that the reason it does feel so obscure and it feels so, um, you know, uh, baroque, as I think you said, or, or what Byzantine. You know, Byzantine. Uh, Byzantine. Thank you, yeah. Byzantine. I was searching for Byzantine. I was like, it's not baroque. It's Byzantine. Byzantine. Thank you, Byzantine. Perfect. Many so I was like, yes, that's, that's exactly how it feels. And I think that the reason for that is most people's, or I'll say the thesis of the piece to a large extent, is that most people's understanding of Iran Contra is the cover up. Mm, um, yeah. And because of that, it feels so strange, and it doesn't quite ever seem. It's hard to find a narrative thread. But what it really was, was about the Reagan administration creating a secret illegal CIA of their own to conduct operations over the world and to run illegal wars. And in order to fund those wars, they ran drugs. Um, or they allowed people to run drugs in order to give them money to fund the wars is perhaps a more more uh, appropriate way of saying it. Um, and that that and that there is another element to it as well that might have come into play, which we'll talk about later, which is um, I don't want to spoil the final episode, but that that's that's largely the gist of of you know without without spoiling the big reveals in the end, that's largely the gist of it. Um, and that the cover up and the the element of framing it as this was missiles for hostages was a way of diverting attention from what they were actually doing and what was actually criminal. Yeah. Um, and we get to explore it from a very fun vantage point of Miami in the nineteen eighties with this young lawyer on his first case who unravels this entire conspiracy, almost gets himself kidnapped by the CIA. Later, he has to yeah. go to Columbia to track down a drug lord's bodyguard. They have to, you know, all, all sorts of, they have to thwart an assassination. Like things get very crazy. He's hiding in Honduras. He's a desperate man. I'm going to keep. Yeah, this on. <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> they, you know, he was um, uh, in Havana, took a little risk. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Now, Iran-Contra happened. I'm probably 11, 12 years old, and I'm older than you. So what's your first exposure to it? What's the first thing that you personally remember about it, like becoming aware of it in the news or anything like that? Do you remember? Um, that is a good question. I don't know. It probably would have been... I don't know. It probably would have been some. Ex my exposure probably would have been from, through some '80s movie that made reference to it or something. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I really don't know when the first time I found out about because that's the other thing is that when you first find out about Iran Contra, it feels so vague and so strange and so like, well, what was that even really? Uh, and that's that for me is also the fun, most fun part of this is because you can do a cover up for a couple of years. You can do a cover up while the public's paying attention, 
but then you can't maintain a cover up for 30 years after that. So what we knew uh, is significantly less than we know about it now. There have been deathbed confessions. There have been all sorts of things, uh, declassified documents, uh, a lot of things that completely changed the way that if we had known that stuff at the time, it would have completely changed the way we saw it then. But because that narrative, that early narrative gets set, you know, like it's like with the Trump Russia stuff, you know, people believe that he's innocent. It doesn't matter that Paul Manafort confessed. They don't yeah. care. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but if other people had had that information from the jump, that narrative that it was, you know, lies, or whatever, or hoax would have never got set for a large amount of people. Uh, and so getting to go back into a scandal after there's been all these releases, after there's been declassifications, after there's been deathbed confessions uh, is an amazing process because you get to see how a cover-up gets built uh, and i'm I'm talking about the cover-up element of it now because we just released episode five which is our cover-up episode okay. um yeah and so that's what's in my head because it is about more than that it's, it's about it's it really ends up in large part being about covert operation american covert operations over the last half of the 20th century yeah i want to get into it on a on a kind of general level because i don't want to spoil the the details of the of the podcast and it ends up being a lot more than just around like it goes yeah, further yeah. than that yeah. and it gets the you know that that sort of that's the Ron Contra element of it kind of ends here and it ends up becoming there's another there's another thing that comes up that's going to be very familiar people aware of this era um so uh I'm trying to think when I first heard of it it was when the lawyer Oliver North's lawyer said what am I a potted plant right do you, remember, do you know that that okay now, yeah. I remember seeing that on TV and being like oh that guy's cool you know that's the funny lawyer um and that's all I remember about it really and and there was somebody named Fawn Hall maybe is that her was that her name yeah the secretary yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. uh that's it that's all I remember so some of the things you touch on and I think you do a, a really good job in this podcast kind of linking um creating and showing us the through line between certain things that we're doing historically like you know where does Vietnam fit in where is OSS to Vietnam to the uh, the revolutions and and the the banana wars that that you talk about a little bit. I want to just go into some of these things just in a very general way, uh, just because I think they're interesting and they do set up kind of the you know the background and the context for what this podcast is. Um, and you know you do a great job explaining it in the podcast, but I think it's interesting to talk about because now we look back at on Vietnam and we were like, what were we doing? That was, you know, it seems like a, a terrible idea. Like, I, it seems like even in the moment, it was a terrible idea. What was the purpose of this? I don't really understand it. I get it was a proxy war and we wanted to stop communism, but communism sucks. People don't like it. It's not going to work. You know, why Why did we invest all this uh, time and effort in, into this? And it was also, it's not like it was like one party and then the other party said, no, 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 this is bad. It was both parties when they were variously in power were absolutely for it. And the whole national security apparatus of the United States government was for it. So talk a little bit about that, like, because I think it's important to go back to that mindset kind of before there's all these anti-war movements and at a time when maybe we still trusted the government a little bit more than than, than we did post-Watergate. Um, you know, why did we do Vietnam? Like, what's the, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, okay, so I have, uh, I have opinions on this. Good. Um, one opinion is that I think that we like to do a lot of mythologizing around JFK. Yes. And we like to, he was very young and he was very handsome. And yes, he's both of those things. 
But it, other than that, he um, made several big mistakes. Yeah. Uh, was, you know, having Ziam assassinated, who was the president of South Vietnam, um, which that was about 20 days before he was uh, killed. Uh, and so that kind of left the Johnson administration with uh, a problem, which was he, Johnson, did not want to allow Vietnam to fall because that was Kennedy's thing. And if he had, RFK would have beat him in a primary. Mm-hmm. That there was a lot of pressure from RFK because RFK, by the way, huge Cold Warrior. Like this is this is part of the myth. Like RFK was on HUAC. Um, RFK was a uh, pretty uh, and also hated Johnson. Hated he, those guys hated each other. Okay. Uh, and so Johnson was terrified that he was going to get hit on the right for being soft on Vietnam, but also be hit in his own party because the Kennedys were cold warriors in a big way. And uh, to lose Vietnam would be to destroy JFK's legacy because he had taken that upon himself to support the government and then to take out the government. (laughs) And so whatever happened after that would be blamed on him. Uh, There's an interesting thing about the Gulf of Tonkin incident that I think is not known. This is actually a thing that will, uh, in the 90s, kind of gets revealed by Mattis which is uh, the reason that there were offensive measures in the Gulf of Tonkin, apparently, was to protect um, or sorry, to support Vietnamese uh, uh, commando units that were Ameri- working for the Americans. So we had trained Vietnamese commandos in Vietnam to work for us, to do our things, and we weren't supposed to be doing that. And uh, that boat that shot in that inner, uh, you know, that fracas, uh, was laying cover to those troops. And the reason that McNamara says that they were returning fire and not firing first was to lie about the fact that there were troops there, right? So they can't say that they're training these troops. So they can't say that they were giving covering fire. They have to say it was defensive fire. Uh, and once you have an American ship that's being shot at and it's defending itself, that is a act of war and they couldn't. And so I think that there is a, a grayness around uh, Johnson going into Vietnam that is much less about like, I think we also like to just dismiss Johnson a, a, on the left as, a, as an important president or as a good president. I think the Vietnam situation was obviously horrible and didn't do wasn't good. But I think that he was pushed into that more than I think we like to think he was. Um, and then uh, I think that um he also tried to end it in 68, but Nixon kind of screwed that up for him by back-channeling with the South Vietnamese and killing talks. We get into that in episode seven, if you're more interested in that. Um, and so I, I think that Vietnam is a mess, but it is a mess of many people's makings. And it is, uh, I think, an interesting hinge point between that sort of Cold War lefty um, and that sort of uh, being... And also, I think another thing that's interesting is the sort of post-Vietnam uh, sort of Watergate babies of uh, Congress and Senate, John Kerry sort of being one of them, and that it is a new approach to sort of left-wing politics in the sense of it's more about social justice than it is about economic justice. And that that being a changing character of the Democratic Party over the last 30 years of the um, 20th century. That's Sorry, good. I might have gone too No, long. no, this is good. This is what we're here for, you know. Okay. If, if, I want to talk to you about stuff that you touch upon on the podcast, but that you don't cover in 
detail, you know, so we, yeah, we're yeah, talking about yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, we're talking about different things. I, I like what you said about the glamorizing of JFK. I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, certainly because he, uh, he was young and handsome and because he died so horribly and so famously, um, you know, er anything that he did, we're, we're not allowed to almost criticize it in a way. And um, yeah, going to Vietnam was, you know, I, I heard that the only plausible explanation I heard is that early on in his presidency, when he went to Berlin, there was something involving him and Khrushchev that he fucked up and he didn't appear strong enough or powerful enough or scary enough. And there was some fear that Khrushchev was just going to laugh at this guy and take. So the Vietnam yeah. posturing was almost at, to to compensate for this initial poor showing. I don't know if that's true. It's just what I heard. It made sense. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he he. I mean, like he did have. I mean, the um, Bay of Pigs was a disaster, obviously. Yeah. And you know, Cuban Missile Crisis was a a PR victory. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was the main bet. I mean, we did have to take missiles out of Turkey. You know, it wasn't yeah. like we didn't. They didn't get nothing out of it. Um, but and that's the thing is that the PR victory ended up being the real victory. So whatever. And uh, yeah, I think that there was but I also think that they were genuinely cold warriors. Like, I think that there was an element of they had to. But like that, they they grew up in a space and a time and their outlook was very anti-communist. And I'm, listen, I'm not a communist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and I think that the other thing that, that is important to mention is that like in the 1930s, uh, and up until the, the early 40s, like, yeah, the, the Soviets had amazingly deep penetration into American society and American government. Like Roosevelt's second VP was surrounded by Russian spies. And it was it wasn't now by the 1950s and 60s. That's not happening. That's <laughs> and, and the paranoia of it is at a fever pitch. And it's almost the fact that they're not finding it is the thing they're paranoid about. But it, it very likely wasn't very much there. But it was at the Brits. I mean, the Brits were totally you know, until the, the 60s where the Cambridge Five I and mean, the top of British intelligence was infested with Russian spies. So, you know, it, it's, it is a good thing to keep in mind of like, they weren't, you know, McCarthy was a mustache, you know, twisting maniac. Yes. But there were cold warriors that had reason, good reasons for, for being such. And I, I don't necessarily think that the end result of their choices was good. I certainly don't agree with going to war in Vietnam. Um, but there's a different con there is a context that it took yeah. place and that um you know I don't know. No, I think that's good because I think it's important to understand the context. And I think for people our age, having heard the other side so much, it's hard to, to go back to where you know the mindset. And you know, Ronald Reagan, I think Reagan and JFK are around the same age, they're the same generation. So I, I think that um he, I was gonna ask you about this too, like. It seems to me that Reagan is just kind of a legit Cold Warrior. Like, I don't think going into the Iran-Contra, I don't think he was thinking about anything other than, I think that these people need to be eradicated to save us from communism. And I think he believed that 100%, even though maybe it wasn't true. What's your sense about Reagan and his motives for being involved in all this? Um, I mean, I think that he is... Uh, a person who was uh, certainly allowed people around I me. Mean, I think I think he was genuine, but I think in his genuineness, uh, he certainly allowed people around him to do some pretty wild things. I think that he was, uh, I think he was down. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of just how I, I think. About it. I think he was he was available. You know, he, he worked for General Electric. 
he was available and he knew what he was. I think he was an actor and I think he knew what people wanted him, how they wanted him to perform. And I think that he knew that if he wanted to be this, he had to do that. Uh, and, you know, he gets into politics, what, in the 60s? Uh, he becomes governor. Um, yeah. And so I think that he probably bought the apple pie and... You know, I don't. I, I I think of Reagan as being a little impenetrable. But I do agree. I think that he's there's a, a genuineness to it, but I also think that there's a shallowness to it that yeah. almost distracts from the genuineness part of it from me. That it's what, what I come down to is you remember his um the apology or the um uh, the facts and evidence tell me I did trade hostages for weapons, <laughs> but my my heart and oh god, what is it? My heart and wish or something like that says otherwise like i think that's probably true i think that he probably genuinely believed everything he was doing was wonderful and he was so unwilling to look at any facts that countered that as to it's like it's it's genuine but it's intentionally unexamined and um shallow and paper thin and that kind of genuineness is you know uh cool <laughs> fine i guess <laughs> for him but like it's a useless genuine. It's 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 a, a superficial genuineness, okay. um, unexamined genuine. Uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. You're, and and please don't get me wrong. I'm in no way defending Reagan. You know, Lord no, knows. but I think you're right. I think I, I think it's actually a good point. It kind of threw me off for a second because it is a really good point. Because I think you're, I, I kind of sidestep the "what does a person believe" question very intentionally, yeah. because I think everybody contains multitudes. I think also what people believe 90% of the time is just a justification of what they've decided to do already. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, uh, so I, it's hard for me to say what's in a person's heart or what's in, you know, I, I try to give a, a, a sympathetic approach and, but I try to be more utilitarian, but that's how I try to approach things. Like why would a person want to do something like this as opposed to, you know, was it this or that and that? Because I think that he probably had a thousand, like, did I think that he knew that they were doing some really bad stuff? Yeah, I, I think on some level he knew that and chose not to look at that. And so is that genuine? I don't know. Like, that's the thing. It's like, it's genuine, but it's like someone who's in denial is genuine about believing the thing they're in denial about. Right. And it's, but, but it's hard to like, for me to think of that as being, there's a process of, of, of self-avoidance that's going on there. And when there is that element of avoidance, it's hard for me to, to, to fully sign off on the genuine thing. But I think you're, you're tapping into an important thing, and it's an interesting point. I think you, what you say about shallowness, the word I would use is Manichaean, almost like I think he thought about it as we're good, they're evil, and everything has to break down into, that, into those two black-white poles. And of course, the world doesn't. And you, we see, like, listen to the podcast and knowing anything at all about 20th century history or the CIA, certainly, it's a big fucking shade of gray all the way across the board. And uh, I feel like Reagan didn't, I think you're right, he didn't want to go there, either couldn't or didn't want to. And at the end of the day, who cares? If it's the same thing. So, um, but let's let's go into that now, because you talk uh, in the podcasters about the banana wars. And I didn't know a lot about this, um, which is kind of these, these revolutions that, that the CIA was apparently fomenting uh during the 67 whatever the 50s 60s 70s. talk a little bit about that and i i just i'm having i'm having trouble wrapping my brain around the cia and i know that it's not uh a monolith and that's always a mistake to think of 
especially these big organizations as monoliths. But I want to come at it from a point of view of having talked to people that work in the CIA or worked there, everybody who is in that organization, certainly now, you know, is on the up and up and believes in what they're doing and believes in the actual mission of it. So then when you hear some of this crazy shit that went on, where there's, you know, they overthrow a democratically elected guy and install some right wing horror show, um, which has basically never worked out well for us, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's just never a good idea. I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around it. So talk a little bit about that, because I think, I think you know, people might not know. I certainly didn't know that much about what they were doing here. I mean, in, in the, you know, the new world. Yes. So the, the banana wars really take place in the, the early part of the 20th century before um, the CIA is formed. Uh, I, the biggest player in them is probably this uh, guy named uh, Sam Zamuri, who is known as the Banana Man. He was a, a Russian immigrant who noticed that uh, when they were selling bananas on the train cars, that they were throwing away good bananas. And so he created the system of collecting them and da 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 and then he became very wealthy off selling just off bananas. And he bought a bunch of land, I believe, oof, sorry, I, I, I did not know we were going to talk about this because I'm a little bit off the cuff, so I could be wrong <laughs> on a couple of details here. But I believe he buys a lot, bunch of land in Honduras first uh, and starts farming bananas there. Soon uh, the government is not very happy with him. And I think that's the one, there's a, a, it's a very in strange incident of uh, a man named Lee Christmas, who is a, a gangster in New Orleans taking a boat with a couple other gangsters and basically just taking over the government with the sort of American government's fairly okay nod. Yeah. Uh, and so that's sort of the beginning or, or early stages of the banana wars. I'm, I apologize if my timeline there's a little off. I might, might have been a little Either way, it's a series of, of wars that United Fruit largely and a couple other fruit companies are trying to control uh, the largely bananas growing areas uh, in Central America. And the American government is very happy to help overthrow governments. And anytime, as the Cold War starts coming in, uh, anytime a well, when a country goes to the left, uh, it is seen as a threat to specifically the banana companies because nationalizing land can be a thing that happens when they go super far left. But also, if they go slightly left, the banana company might not have much control of the company. Or the country, rather, when I have much control of the country. And so it was easier to just have people that they could completely control. And this sort of acts in a weird way as a, a prelude uh, to CIA operations in Central America, uh, largely in the Reagan era. I mean, Nixon, uh, Eisenhower, um, Kennedy, I guess that's a lot of the presidents. Th those are probably the, the heaviest in terms of uh, activity uh, in Central America uh, and South America. Nixon's a little more South America. So yeah, it's it's basically it starts off there. But all, one of the things we point out in the uh, series is that the CIA officer who was asked to do the Guatemala overthrow in fifty eight, I want to say fifty three, fifty eight. I'm, I'm one of the two. Sorry. I, um, when he's asked to do that, it's entirely to support United Fruit. So even though the Banana Wars had ended by that point, the CIA is sort of continuing those operations to an extent that it's not. Not the only thing that's going on, whereas the banana wars, it really is. These guys are just overthrowing governments to protect America fruit companies. And the fruit companies are often involved in the overthrowing themselves. Whereas this is a sort of hybrid of Cold War intentions, business interests also being served, and it becomes this sort of melting pot of 
ideology and finance mixing together in dual motivations. And that tends to be when things get out of hand. Now, Nicaragua, which is sort of the base of all this stuff, like the, that's the battleground that Iran-Contra comes out of because the Contras were basically, they were called the freedom fighters or the, uh, you know, but they're the sort of the counter-revolutionaries as they called themselves because the Sandinistas were the, like the left-wing revolutionaries. Um, and it's this whole big mess because the Contras, some of them were in Honduras coming down into Nicaragua. Some of them were in Costa Rica going up into Nicaragua. Um, so talk a little bit about that, just the because the, even that is complex for a, a you know a small company the uh, company for a small country like that it seems like it's an awful lot of different uh, you know factions. Uh, yes, absolutely, and it was a mess. So you know the idea of invading Nicaragua, right? Like you have to invade a problem somewhere. You can't just invade inside the country. Uh, and the Contras, which was so the Contras were a, a rebel army in Nicaragua that was formed by the CIA uh, to go to war against the local government, which was left wing, which had just taken over a couple of years before. And so who does the CIA pick? Well, the, the main guy is Adolfo Calero. His job before the war was he ran the Coca-Cola company in Nicaragua. So, you know, not necessarily a real general, more of um, a face that you can put on it. And that kind of is a nice setup for how things go because there's a lot of money just being stolen uh and they're not really doing a lot of fighting they're you know uh they are killing people and you know bringing people into their army by force and uh there is some combat but they're not taking any land and it is a mess um and so that's sort of where our story comes in in episode two one of our main guys is sent down there to kind of get it operational um but yeah the uh so the army that they they get together is also completely disputed factions so one of the main generals is uh had been a sandinista the left wing had been one of the heads of that, that army and then he had a falling out with them uh and there's this constant process where the different leaders of the contras are allegedly trying to kill each other because they all want to be in control of the country when assuming their hope is that America is going to invade and just install them as, as leaders of the country. Sure. Uh, but within their faction, who is going to actually take over is the big question. So there's more infighting within the Contra forces, or I guess I should say as much infighting within the Contra forces as there is in the country of Nicaragua. And these, because again, we haven't, they haven't taken any land in Nicaragua, they're stuck in Honduras, uh, they're in El Salvador, they're in Costa Rica. And those countries aren't really happy about these guys being there uh Costa Rica especially not so Costa Rica is actually an interesting very interesting country in all of this because it, it, it's the one country that uh in the area where uh, they have a really uh very high standard of living really good medical system and one and they have no army right yeah it's a neutral country one of the reasons is that America never actually invaded <laughs> never put a base there never did anything. uh other than in the 1980s briefly out of this guy John Holt Ranch uh, they ran operations, but the Costa Rican government arrested a bunch of those guys, which becomes a, a thing in, in the show. Uh, and so the Central America is sort of being used as America's launching pad, uh, our, our allied countries, for uh, invasions into countries that are we don't like. Uh, and I think also an important point about all of this, I think that uh, we should make, you sort of talk, mentioned the, sort of the CIA earlier as a, um, how does it fit in? 
I think that one of the points we try to make in the show is that people think of the CIA as being sort of an independent body, as being the sort of thing that just operates on its own, but it is just part of America's foreign policy apparatus. And so, you know, if they're doing a coup in a country, like they're not going to overthrow the government of the country when the president's about to sign a trade deal, right? right? Like <laughs> it has it has to be part of a broader foreign policy strategy or people are going to get fired and go to jail. Uh, and so, again, not to say that they, the president knows everything that is happening. He's not briefed on in their rogue operations. And the CIA is a political force in Washington and it can pressure and it can do all sorts of things. But broadly speaking, it works for the president uh, and, and it's operating under his supervision and direction. Um, so, yeah, side point. So what's so special about Nicaragua, though? Like what like now now when I look back on this, I think, OK, I get it. You don't want to have like another communist Soviet allied country in the northern, you know, in this part of the world, so close to the U.S., whatever. But eh, I mean, I don't know, like it just seemed like so much effort and um, almost like a, a level of the, the cover up is almost like Bernie Madoff trying to cover up all that bullshit for years and years. And for what? For like, you know. Nicaragua? I don't know. It just seems like it's not that important. Is is there something that I'm missing or is it just that was the mindset at the time? Oh, I mean, I think that you are, one is right to think that it was not important in a, in a larger geopolitical sense. Uh, I think that from the perspective of people not knowing the Cold War is about to end, I think that they thought this could be another Cuba. That that was, that was the idea, is that this is going to be another Cuba they're going to become a Soviet, you know, and they, they, they're connected by land to us. And oh my gosh. And, but also, I think that a lot of these things take on a life of their own. Like it worked politically for Reagan. Um, that, that Carter had allowed this revolution in Nicaragua, that he had allowed these, these left-wing wingers to take over. So basically, a little backstory on that. So the Somoza government, which is a, the Somoza family, had run... Uh, Nicaragua for decades before and they we had been training their revolutionary guard we had been providing them troops and those guys were really vicious and really brutal and they had been going to war against um, the Sandinistas for a while um, there had been an earthquake as well there's a lot of, a lot of turmoil but um, in uh, 78 uh, the uh, Sandinistas take over push them out uh, and Carter agrees to you know uh, normalized relations with the country. So this is a, a political issue during the campaign. And uh, Reagan has been hitting this point, And it, we need to you know, prevent this, we need to stop the spread of communism, we need to stop this from coming. And, and it built and built and built. And because, again, not a super self reflexive person, someone who can lean in and just spout things, the line became that the, you know, the Nicaraguans were, were going to form a communist revolution in America, that they were going to bring the revolution here, and it was a personal threat to us and da da da. da. And so I think that there was probably some genuine concern mixed with a lot of political expediency. Uh, and when you don't question whether what you're doing is right or wrong, you can do some pretty terrible things with that wind on your back. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if they're right, though. I mean, I, you know, running on people from Central America invading the United States clearly doesn't work. Oh, wait, no, never mind. It does work. It does work. <laughs> build a wall. Um, it's, well they, played. <laughs> they did come here eventually. You know, they came here eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it, it's funny when you were talking about Reagan there, it's like if Trump were saying all that stuff in the campaign and hitting, as soon as he became president, he just wouldn't do anything about it. 
That's why I think yes. my argument about Reagan being somewhat genuine is that he did continue to do it. So I think he did, you know, believe in it in a way that I just think now, yeah, Trump or any of these, this crop of of MAGA Republican, just they don't do anything other well, than- but, but, you know, yeah, that's definitely. I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, I I think that uh, Reagan had very competent people around him. Whether you, you think he they did good things or bad things, especially in his first term, uh, less so uh, second term probably. But uh, he had competent people. I, I I disagree with many of the things that they did. I, I'm not saying that you know I think that they were great people as you know or great represent, representatives of American democracy, but they were competent. Um, and it wasn't just uh, an ego fest. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, I think whether it's, you know, from the death of earmarks to, uh, you know, a lot of things that has gotten us to a place where government doesn't, on the right, doesn't need to function for them to get their support. Um, you know, Trump never passed a bill and nobody cared. Yeah. And so... You know, it's uh, because his when people say Trump, like people act, treat Trump's presidency like he won it because he didn't get removed from office by before he got elected out before he lost election uh, or because he didn't, hasn't gone to prison yet. People are like if, if not going to prison is winning, you're I mean, every politician has been amazingly successful, you know, or most of them, 90 percent of them. And anyone who's not like the mayor of Chicago is doing great. Right. Uh, <laughs> Blago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's uh yeah no it the bar is so 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 low um the the other thing that's important i think um in the context of of the story that you're telling is the boland amendment um because it did some things kind of when this was already going on that made it impossible for them to continue so talk, talk a little bit about that and then you know first of all what is it and then i just wonder if it was a good thing or a bad thing that it was even passed. Like, I, I, and I don't know the answer. I think probably since the anti-Reagan forces passed it, it was good. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that what, and, and Jonathan Weiner makes this point, and uh, it actually makes it a, a bonus episode, so I think I should, I should probably make it here, which is that one of the reasons he was very much against Reagan's policy is that especially at that point, when there was a lot of uh, turmoil in um, Central America, you don't want to be tearing governments down because it, it contributes to chaos. It contributes to corruption. It contributes to things like drug running. Um, and that what you want to do is you want to have good relationships with the government and put pressure on them to not be corrupt, to do the right things and to, to have democratic processes. And if you're doing that, you're actually helping the region because you need those countries. If you, for example, if our border problems are other countries' border problems. Yeah. Because they have to leave them to come to us. And so if you're dismantling other countries, you're creating all of these other ancillary problems for yourself and the region. Um, and that um, and so beyond just being not nice and being wrong, it's actually foolhardy. Um, and, and that that would be the, and I would tend to agree with that. I think that when we are when you create chaos, you, you can change the situation, but you don't get to control where it goes. Yeah. And it almost certainly isn't going to go in the direction you want it to go, because the the, the scenarios that work for you are probably pretty narrow yeah. <laughs> in the realm of all the possible situations. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, things can always get worse, I guess, is the is the uh, yes, is that the Boland. Oh, and the Boland. Sorry, I, I, I didn't I didn't talk about the Boland moment. Do you want me to do, you want me to do a history of the Boland? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, okay, okay. So basically, 
uh, where we where, well, in the history of this, the CIA creates the um, the Contras, right? We're going to do go to war against this country and take it over and make it right wing America. Happy, happy. So they start doing that. They fund this group. They create this army, and then they mine some a port, a public port in Nicaragua, and it kills some people. It's front page news. Very clearly, the CIA did this. Murdered civilians. Oops, not good. So uh, the Congress, which at the time is is uh, controlled by Democrats, um, passes a a couple of laws, which are known as the Boland Amendments. But really, the, the main one uh, passes in 1984. And what it says is that the uh, government, U.S. government, no intelligent agency can provide lethal aid to the Contras. And the way that they got around it was that they claimed that the national, or, sorry, no intelligence collecting agency can um, uh, do that. And their excuse was that the National Security Council is not an intelligence collecting agency, which is, by the way, it's like part of its like man, it's like yeah. uh, charter. <laughs> so it is. Um, but yes. And so that um, made it so that there was no official funding uh, for that war. And so what they ended up doing was going off the books, getting private funding from conservatives, uh, getting funding from other countries, and getting funding from drug runners. And yeah. So, but the Boland, it was specifically targeted at the Contras. It was like, it wasn't, yeah. you can't give money to anybody. It's just these specific people. Oh okay. yeah, no, it was very specifically targeted. And it was, it was also, they could give them non-lethal aid, but they just couldn't give them any lethal aid. Okay. Okay. Um, because I think that all of that is is interesting to understand. Yeah, and again, you know, in in hindsight, this does look to me like another Vietnam kind of situation where, from our vantage point, post Soviet collapse, it's hard to really understand how scared everybody was of the dominoes falling and the Red Scare and all that shit. Well, I think I think that's true. I think there's also another analogy because let me just just take you through how I see Contra War. Okay, it was a president trying to overthrow a government. And so he went off the books, he used militia members, Miami Cubans, retired generals mm -hmm. to try to do it illegally. And that sounds a lot like January 6th. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good segue into my last question. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're hitting on an hour. I don't want to I don't want to keep you too long. So um, now again, now we're going to we're going to we're going to fast forward to the here and now. Um, now you've been on this beat and looking at all this stuff now for you know six seven years so you and you know in your documentary you go into a lot of the stuff with the disinformation with the psyops with the q thing um there's just a lot of shit going on now i feel like right now some of it's because of twitter being completely destroyed i think intentionally by elon musk some of it mm -hmm. is because the media continues to suck and not understand what's going on and the both sides being, um and some of it is just, I don't know, one of the political parties is is completely taken over by uh, the bad guys. So you put all of that together and the amount of um, disinformation, misinformation, just in, in, in the in the ether right now, especially after the Hamas stuff, is just, it, it's the most that I've seen in quite some time. And yes. it concerns me heading into the election year. So I, I just... What are you seeing in terms of psyops and disinformation and stuff like that? Are you afraid heading into next year? Uh, less afraid? Like, what, what should we be looking for? Just 
I just want your thoughts on all of those things. Yeah. So I, I'm I, I am concerned. I am a person who I I thought Donald Trump could win in 2016. I, people thought I was crazy. I, I think that he can win now, but I don't think he will. I think that one of the things that that for me and I started developing this during the the primary was the like this this my secret theory of Biden competence that nobody seemed to give him credit for, but he seemed to be making the right moves at the right time every time. And like, remember when there was zero percent chance he was going to win the primary when he lost two in a row, three in a row, and he was out. He knows how to time stuff. He's actually good at politics. Yes. Um, and so I am less worried because right now everybody is freaking out that Trump might win. And that's good timing. This is around when you want it to start being a referendum on Trump. Mm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nobody's been looking at, nobody's really been paying attention to a lot of the stuff he's been saying. It hasn't really been a thing. Now is about when people start freaking out, and that's good. So I feel, I feel good with Biden. I mean, I wish he had done. That the indictments had happened earlier, but I think that you could make the case that you needed to indict a lot of the lower level people because that was the tip of the, the spear, like making sure that those guys knew if you do this, you go to jail yeah. uh, immediately. That was the most important thing um, because it really does undercut their ability to do that in the future. Um, so I think that, but I do wish that a lot of the stuff had happened a, a bit sooner. But other than that, I think that, you know, I, I think he's doing a great job. And I think that when all of a sudden, I mean, I think the other thing people forget is how unpopular Barack Obama was in at this point in his first term. Remember when Catherine Sebelius was handling the rollout of Obamacare? Is it Catherine <laughs> Sebelius, right? Uh, and the website didn't work. Yeah. And it was a nightmare. And he was going to lose. And Democrats don't like their guys when they're in office. Or if they do, they end up not liking them later. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, like Johnson, the biggest election election victory in like Democratic politics history, resigns the next time. Bill Clinton, <laughs> most popular president in office, don't invite him. Don't invite him to anything. Yeah, that's um, a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> but Obama was not popular in office. Like, go check the polling. Don't don't go back to when he was in the like high thirties, low forties. Um, and so I think that we're going to look back at Joe Biden as one of the, I mean, probably the best president of my lifetime. I've been, I've been making that case for a long time, by the way. So I, yeah, well, I, and you, I, you are correct. I mean, it's <laughs> more important legislation than anyone else I can think of. And he, and he'll have a scandal. There's going to be a scandal that's happened, but the fact that the right wing is hitting him for his kid in 2018, when he's been president for three years, pretty telling. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's. I don't think he's gonna have a scandal. I, I, if they were as the, the administration will have a scandal. Somebody will do something stupid. Yeah, you know, eventually someone's gonna do something really dumb and whatever. It, it, you can't, especially if get reelected. They'll, they'll be. You can't have that many people employed at a high level and have one of them not do something really stupid. Yeah. Um, hopefully, it's not a systemic scandal that he's involved in, or that it's not too bad, or blah blah blah. blah. I'm just saying the fact that there hasn't been anything at this point, yep. other than people disagreeing with policy decisions, which is totally fair, uh, is pretty shocking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, given all the, it, yeah, it, it. Sometimes I feel like it's him against the world in a sense. Like I'm just like, mm -hmm. oh my god, you know, if this guy wasn't here, I don't know where we would be. I think we would be totally fucked. And uh, yeah, you know, and I think that. Uh, I don't know. And I'm not worried about his age because I think he's 
I think, and I've said this on the pod many times, so the listeners will know, I'll tell you so you know. I think he's going to win. I think he's going to win easily. I think he's going to be president for like two more years, and then he's just going to retire and hand Kamala the car keys, and that's it. She's going to be president for two years and get to run on a incumbent. I, I agree with I agree with you. Other than the step down part, yeah, you don't think he wants to do that? I think Biden's a good, lovely, wonderful man, a dear heart, a gentle person. I also think he's a person who thought I should be president of the United States. And those guys have a, have an extra gear of narcissism. I don't care who you are or how. And bless their heart, like nothing. It's just I, politicians. Like I, those guys just don't step down. Like that's why I, this was the other thing. I never, I always thought he was going to run for re-election, and I, I think that he, it was actually that was the one thing he did that I actually don't like because I think the reason people are dismissive of Kamala is that they're like, well, where is she? Because they thought he wasn't running again, and they assumed he wasn't running. Everyone assumed he wasn't running again for the first like year and a half, and so it was why is Kamala not more in the public eye? Uh, and the reason was he was obviously running again. Yeah. Well, it's 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 silly not to run again. It's such an advantage to be the incumbent. Yeah, I mean historically, Absolutely. if you look at the number, you you have to really fuck up bad to lose one term in this country. You know, if yeah. you go back and look at the yeah, you got Trump, you've got uh, H.W., which had the Ross Perot thing screwed that up for him. Um, you know, you got Carter, you've got Hoover is the biggest example. That was just a complete shit show. You know, you have to mess up bad. And uh, it's also Republicans. I mean, it's it is good to remember that since 1992, Republicans have won one popular vote for the presidency. Yeah. One. <laughs> yeah. Since 1992. So that's, you know, not a small amount of time. Um, so they they te- they tend not to push. They push policies that are popular to you know, in the districts. But they tend not to, you know, um, win general elections. Yeah. I mean, the times they win them, but not with the yeah. popular vote. They, um, but they yeah. cheat with the electoral college. That, you know, it's baked into the. Uh, it's almost like a, you know, one of these. It's almost like the like like the football game is on in the next room. It's like the oh my god, it's a touchdown. Wait, no, it's not. There's a flag on the field. We have to do instant replay. <laughs> no, it's not. We're going to change the rule for no reason at all. And uh, that's what I feel like with the electoral college. It's just some weird crazy bullshit and i'm sure people in other countries look at us like what this makes no sense at all um and it yeah. doesn't they're right they would be right well our our politics broadly i think are great i mean just my my favorite thing with republicans who are really are upset about like woke stuff in mm-hmm. their politics and like they, they're voting for a right winger because they want to fight the woke agenda it's like okay what do you want your politician to actually do about wokeness like, what's the law you want them to pass that's going to address this problem and there isn't one. And it's like, that's, I think a lot of it is also just like lazy politicians being like, if I promise to fulfill something that is not part of my job description, if I'm fighting for a thing that is not something I can actually deliver, then you're not going to actually expect me to deliver anything. I can deliver whatever I want. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that our our politic is happening under, you know, a, a very disturbing context right now. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It, it is. And um, I don't know, but I, I, I do feel optimistic heading into the election year. As long as he's alive and sentient, I think we're I think we're good. So put him in bubble wrap and, uh, you know, it looks good. He looks healthy. He looks he's certainly with it. So I think we're going to be we're going to be OK. So, again, your podcast is called uh, Lawyers, Guns and Money. 
Um, we haven't even mentioned John Cryer, who's the the narrator. Oh, yes, I, I forgot. He's amazing. To, yeah, he's terrific. If you, if you ever want to any, anything you're working on to be better, make it with John Cryer. Yeah, <laughs> he's really he's, got, he's he, I mean he's a he's a very good narrator and host. He's also a really good producer. Uh, and it was a lot of fun working with him. He's great and uh, does really. He's a, he's a much bit more eloquent speaker than I am, for example. <laughs> I I, I, th I think your eloquence is is quite oh, eloquent. Well, yeah, it's well, quite eloquent. You, it's you. eloquent eloquence. Um, and he's also knowledgeable, you know, Cryer's been on yeah. Twitter talking about this shit for, you know, years and years too. So, oh yeah, um, he knows the stuff. No, absolutely. Cryer is wildly, uh, engaged in all this, uh, and is very, very interested and he's a smart guy. Absolutely. Yeah. So lawyers, guns and money, get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Jack Bryan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8 the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time... We shall prevail. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. As the Tower Board reported, what began as a strategic opening to Iran deteriorated in its implementation into trading arms for hostages. M.S.W. Media.